Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There are two parts to our gospel lesson this morning. And at first glance, they might seem like uh, two very separate things, like maybe loosely related. However, with a closer look, I think you'll see more clearly that they are very much intertwined. On the first part, we see that Jesus has his set face toward Jerusalem. That means that he is now looking toward his ultimate ministry, which will be his bitter suffering and death in Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is the city that kills the prophets and stones the ones who are sent to her. As Jesus and his disciples come into Samaria, the advanced team goes first. He sends a couple people ahead and he says, well, we're going to be traveling for a while, so go ahead and find some places where we can spend the night, some places that will receive us and feed us. And, and that was customary in that day for places for people to show hospitality. Uh, it, you would travel to Jerusalem, Jews would check, travel to Jerusalem regularly, at least once a year, uh, or more for the various feasts, and they would come, oftentimes they would come down through Samaria on their way to Jerusalem. <clears throat> so they go through first, and um, just to give a little more context, you may, might recall that the Samaritans were viewed as mongrels. They were like a group of, of Jews that had broken off because they were in the northern kingdom. So they were not part of the true Israel. And when they were conquered by the Assyrians, the Assyrians had this brilliant plan of taking people from the countries they conquered and like scattering them all over. So it like kept the people down, you know, because it, it like, you know, mixed up their culture and everything else. Well, that's what happened in Samaria. So there were a bunch of Samarians and, and other people that had... Uh, there were more than just Jews there, and they had, over the years, mixed with them. So the good Jews viewed Samaritans as a, a mixed race, a bunch of mongrels. They, they looked down on them scornfully. And the Samaritans also looked down on the uh, Israelites. The feeling was mutual. In fact, they did not regard Jerusalem as the true uh, location for the temple. The, in Samaria, there was a mountain called Mount Gerizim. And they thought Mount Gerizim is the true location for the worship of God, not Jerusalem. Okay, so it gives you a little context. So here comes Jesus, and he sends the advanced team ahead of time, and they come through looking for a place to stay. Now, it's not that the Samaritans didn't like Jesus. It, it's, it's this. Jesus had his face set toward Jerusalem. He's not going to go suffer and die on Mount Gerizim. He's going to go suffer and die in Jerusalem. So he's going to come through their land. He's going to sleep in a home there and eat their food. And he's going to walk right by their holy place, Mount Gerizim, without even giving a nod to it. This is an affront to the Samaritans, and it is an insult. And so they don't want him. They say, no, no, we're not going to receive him. Can you imagine? This is the Messiah. 
And they say, nah, we're not going to receive you. So can you blame James and John? These are the sons of thunder. That's, that's their nickname, the sons of thunder. Can you blame them for their reaction? Hey, uh, Jesus, you want us to go ahead and call down fire from heaven to consume these people? These ungrateful, sinful Samaritans who are rejecting the Messiah. Should I go ahead and call down fire? You can almost see them saying it in such a way as to be like, look, you don't even have to say yes, Jesus. Just kind of blink once and I'll know the answer is, yeah, go ahead, let's do it. Toast. These guys are toast. Nope. That's not Jesus' response. They're also justified somewhat, if you think about it, because there's uh, an example in the Old Testament. Elijah called down fire from heaven. He did. Elijah called down fire from heaven. Of course, there are some differences, too. I mean, uh, Ahab and Ahaziah were being judged because they were just out, like, totally wicked and, um, and perverse and, and had uh, blasphemed God, and so they were being judged. But this is, not, this is not what the will of God is here. And so Jesus rebukes them. And I, I'm afraid to say that we probably, I know I can, and I suspect you can too, easily relate to these sentiments sometimes. Who here has not suffered injustice? Who in here has not desired that God would rain down judgment on those who perpetrate injustice against you or against others. I mean, you look around, there's a lot of hate in the world. There's a lot of hate. And it's sometimes we, we look at it and we're like, well, this is, that's different. This is a righteous hatred. Oh, I hate the guy who's done this evil thing. So we can relate. We can relate. We can understand what they're thinking, you know, why they would want... God to rain judgment down on the people in Samaria. I mean, we see also our our Christian brothers overseas who are persecuted for their faith. How horrendous it is. You can read accounts of it. Uh, One that was particularly vivid is um, a book called Intended for Evil. And it's a book about a young man living a relatively normal life in Cambodia, right around the time that the Khmer Rouge came to power. And he watched his family tortured and killed. He himself was starved. He recounts like what happened, his experiences in, in all this. It's, it's awful. And it just, you want to like reach into the page and grab these soldiers by the neck and strangle them. You want to lift your hands to God and say, God, rain down judgment on these people. This is horrendous what they're doing. And it is. It doesn't stop there. I mean, here in this country, all right, well, for the most part, we haven't been killed for our faith, but we suffer persecution nonetheless. Go ahead and speak the truth. Speak it in love and speak it in the most soft, softest, appealing kind of way you can. But, but just say, especially now, this is Pride Month, right? So just, just say, well, yeah, see, that, 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 
that thing you're so proud of is a sin for which Jesus Christ died. It's not loving for me to ignore that. It's not, lo- it's not loving for me to watch you run toward a cliff and not throw up the warning flags and say, stop, stop, don't run off that cliff. Because that's a sin for which Jesus died for. But go ahead and say those words and see how the world receives you. You're a bigot. Oh, you're hateful. How could you say that? Who made you judge over me? How can you judge me? You know, there's a supreme irony there, which is that if I apply God's word and I say, well, this is what God's word says. I'm not going to put my judgment on it. I'm just going to say that's what his word says, and I'm going to go with it. That's labeled as judgmental. But on the, and actually, you're not exercising really any judgment. You're saying God exercises the judgment. I'm just simply applying that. On the other hand, if you take the Bible and say, well, God said that, but he didn't exactly mean that. He meant something slightly different. And, oh, you know, people were a bunch of barbarians and heathens that wrote things a thousand years ago anyway. That's, that you're using your judgment. You're using your judgment to undo God's word. So there's a real irony there. Anyway, I don't want to get off subject. If you refuse to fly the rainbow flag, or even worse yet, if you put the rainbow flag and say, this is the symbol God gave us to say he will not destroy the earth with a flood again. Not to say you should be proud of your sin. Pride itself is a sin. But go ahead and, with, you know, and, 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 and speak that truth and you will suffer scorn. You will be hated. You will be Persecuted, You will be labeled a bigot. You will be shamed. Jesus, shall we call out to God to rain judgment on, on these enemies of the cross? Those who would withhold the teaching of God's word? Shall we call out to God? Lord, please rain your judgment on all these heathen pagans. Luke recalls that Jesus rebuked the disciples for this suggestion. And imagine their surprise. They think they're on God's side, saying, should we call out to God to judge these Samaritans for their wickedness? Weren't they justified in their anger and their indignation? Jesus is the Messiah, and the, and the Samaritans confirm their wickedness by not receiving him. But the second part of our gospel lesson here will help us understand why the answer is No. You do not call out for God's judgment on these people. We have three accounts of those who would follow Jesus. These are the would-be followers of Jesus. And you know what? Maybe they did follow him. Maybe these are some of the disciples, and maybe they're not. We don't know. Because the point in these questions of these people who say, you know, who ask, you know, who address Jesus about what it means to follow him, Luke doesn't tell us what the answer is, which leaves us with the conclusion that These are rhetorical questions we should be asking ourselves. Anyway, let me go on. The first one says, Jesus, I love this. This this reminds me, as we're reading through the Old Testament, going through Exodus, of what we just read this morning. All this we will do, such confidence, you know, to say this boldly to God. Oh yeah, God, all these laws you've given, we'll do them. That lasted about three seconds. Okay, this one, this Jesus, he says, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Well, that is certainly pretty bold talk. 
Oh, yes, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. It reminds me of Peter's self-confidence, you know? Oh, no, I will never deny you, Jesus. Never deny you. I'm the rugged fisherman, Peter. I will never deny you. Mm, Yeah, right. Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Hmm, what exactly does he mean by that? Hold that thought for a minute. We look at the other. Jesus called to him and said, follow me. Sure, let me go bury my father first. I mean, that's a perfectly reasonable request. Let me bury my father. Man's father is dead. He wants to bury him. Who would withhold that from, his son, from this man? You know, of course, go bury your, fa- your father. It's fitting and proper to do that. So how can Jesus then respond the way he did, which is to say, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. I mean, isn't that a bit harsh, Jesus? Don't you think so? Now we have the would-be disciple who says, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Again, saying goodbye is reasonable. Yeah, Jesus, I'm going to come along, but let me just say goodbye to everybody. Have a little going away party, a little sending off. I mean, what is the problem with this? Nevertheless, we have Jesus' response. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. It just sounds so harsh. Almost like none of us are fit for that. Maybe there's some way we can explain away these responses so that they don't impose on us, you know? Because this sounds like a real imposition. Jeez, it's almost like following Jesus means I'm like forsaking a whole lot in my life, even my family. Maybe there's some way we can soften this. I mean... Does he really want me to have a life that's that challenging, imposing on me? A life that requires us to place Christ above our comfort? You know, no, foxes don't have a place to lay their their head down. Or foxes do have a place to lay their head down. Birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't. You know, maybe um, a, a life that requires us to place Christ above our comfort does, does, that, does he require us to place Christ above our own family even? Perhaps Jesus was just saying, buckle up, it's going to be a bumpy ride. I mean, another way you could look at this is to say, Jesus was speaking an act of, in an act of kindness. He was speaking the truth to these people to say, be sober-minded, Okay. You came to me and you said, I will follow you wherever you go, okay? Now, I need to tell you what that means. Before you commit to that, I need you to understand what that means. That means you won't always be comfortable. That means you might expect to be scorned and ridiculed and hated and loathed. That's what that means. Take a sober assessment of that. That's what Jesus is saying. Did they follow? Some did. Some didn't. Don't know. Again, I I think that what Luke is trying to get us to do in this is to think about that. What does this mean? 
The final uh, image that we have in this plow, I think, sort of wraps this all up. You take the plow, it's a single plow, and you set it up, and you hook up the ox, and then how do you make an ox go? I don't, do you have to whip it, or do you just say, like, yeah, or something like that? Anyway, you make the ox go, and the ox starts walking. I mean, it's like a freight train. He's pulling the plow. It's not stopping. Now, what do you do? You're the driver of the plow. You're sitting there holding the handlebars. Well, if you're looking back, what's that plow going to do? You're going to go this way, and you're going to go this way, and you're going to have a plow line that looks like this. And that's what Jesus is saying. No, you can't do that. Now, what does it take to keep your eyes focused ahead to where you're going and plow that straight line? It takes a benchmark. It takes a guide. It takes someone that your eyes are on. And by faith, you trust this is the right direction. I am moving in the right direction. And by faith, you trust that the plow is doing its work. You're not looking back constantly to check and make sure the plow is going in a straight line. You're looking ahead and you're trusting that as long as I keep heading in this right direction toward my Savior, that when I get there and look back, I will see the straight line. This is the image that Jesus is conjuring in this. This is what it means to look ahead. And what is it that, what and who is it that we're looking to? We're looking to Christ. I mean, this is a beautiful illustration. We live by faith. We walk by faith. We look forward to Christ. He leads us and we follow. This is why Paul wrote to the Philippians. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is the life that is lived walking by faith. We take a sober assessment of the implications. At times, you will be despised by the world. You will be hated for righteousness. By the way, people don't like to be told that they're doing something wrong. I don't. I can't stand it. But I tell you what, I'm grateful that there are people who have pulled me aside. They've loved me enough to pull me aside and say, that's wrong. I'm, I am grateful for those people. You'll receive scorn, shame from pagans. Some people may find this alarming and a cause of fear. I mean, you might. Don't be afraid. Jesus has told his disciples, which includes each of you, to expect all of this in your life. So when it comes, when persecution comes, you don't have to be surprised. When you suffer injustice, you don't have to be surprised. When you're mocked and ridiculed, you don't have to be surprised. And you can indeed count it as a joy to suffer for Christ's sake. Now, perhaps some of you have judged yourself unfit. I know I did. I do. I'm not fit for this. Jesus, are you kidding me? No. I'm, I'm, if I was any one of those three people, I'm turning and going the opposite direction. I can't do this, Jesus. I can't walk down this path that you're calling me to. I'm not good enough for this. Friends, if you say that to yourself, then I will say you have judged yourself correctly. I'm not giving you a false affirmation. Oh, no, you're the loveliest people. 
You are, I love you all. You are lovely people. But no, not, not in the sense of holiness before God. No, no, no. If you've judged yourself not worthy, you have judged yourself correctly. Now, judge your Savior correctly also. Because remember, he's the one who's really plowing that straight line. That straight line right now, that's leading him to Jerusalem where he knows he will suffer and die for your sake. For your sins, he will suffer and die. Not looking at you at the high point in your life, you know, where you were just the apple in everyone's eyes, you know, the one who was always out feeding the poor and doing all the lovely things. I mean, that's great. I love all that. I love all that. I mean, we are charitable people. But Jesus sees us at our low point. He sees us in the muck, in our sin. And he says, yes, I'm going to die for you. I will die for these sins you are committing. And I will take those sins away from you. So, yeah. It's by Jesus' shed blood that your sins are forgiven. And it's in Christ that you have been made righteous. So, it's not your worthiness, but it's Christ's worthiness that we cling to. All right, final note, and then I will close. I want to read from Acts 9.31. This passage from Acts, which follows the conversion of Paul, um, gives uh, just some history about what was happening in the early church. And I want, I want you to hear what was happening in the early church. This is after Jesus has died. He has resurrected. He has uh, ministered for 40 days. He has ascended into heaven and the church can, carries on with its mission. Acts 9.31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. What do you know? Even these people in Samaria that James and John would have called hellfire down on, even they were the seed of the church to which we are now a part of. Okay, we are part of that same church. Nobody, no one is beyond God's grace. We do not need to call down. It is a sinful temptation that I suffer from myself sometimes. But trust me, do your worst, world. By God's help, I'm not going to call fire from hell, from heaven, down on you. But what I'm going to ask is that in Jesus Christ, you will receive a new heart, a circumcised heart, a heart that says, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And thank you, Jesus, for being that Savior. That's my prayer for those who would persecute me, who would persecute you, who would persecute anyone of the church, is that they would receive faith. Thanks be to God. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.